Matthew Buckley Smith, and you are listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thanks especially to those of you who have taken a moment sometime this week to recommend the show to somebody you think might like it, whether that be a classmate, a teacher, a student, a stranger on the bus, or just or just some weirdo in your life who has some contrarian thoughts about poetry. That is, uh, that is the primary way people learn about this podcast, through you, through the listeners. So thank you very much. I hope you keep it up and continue to pass the word along. This week, my guest is Mark McGinnis, who is a really good guy for, I mean, he, he really conceived and, and researched and pitched this whole episode. He is a very successful podcaster in his own right. He has a podcast called the 21st Century Creative uh, that we didn't even really talk about because what he is most interested in, what he cares most about personally is poetry. He just started a podcast called A Mouthful of Air. And along with his own poetry, his own translate, he's translating all of Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida into modern English, which is pretty mind-blowing, particularly considering that he's maintaining the rhyme royal. Uh, but he came on the show to talk about formal poetry and to talk about some problems with the way people talk about formal poetry. He has, he has some slightly uh, unorthodox uh, views. And he also brought in a couple of really excellent uh, essays by Dana Joya, about whom I have many mixed feelings myself, but who, who has a really terrific essay about a, it's a new critique of the new critics that I had not encountered before and that I'm pretty, I find myself pretty convinced by, as well as, as well as a very, you know, a very characteristically measured and insightful piece by uh, Robert Archambault about conceptual poetry. Anyway, uh, Mark McGinnis joined me for I think a really fun conversation. He is uh, he is to 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 give you a fair warning. He has an extremely soothing uh, British therapist's voice, which he gets. He comes by it truly after many years of training and practice in therapy. But his views when it comes to poetry are by no means easygoing or laid back. He, he has some strong opinions and he shares them uh, with me pretty eloquently. So th- uh, I, I think you will really enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. Uh, let's get to that right now. There are lots of complaints about formal poetry and particularly, you know, it, uh, as, as Austin said, it, it's a term that can sound staid and it sort of, um, it, it suggests that you're you are you're dressing something up rather than just sort of um, enjoying the process. But then you specifically take issue with the term constraint, and you you even say specifically, uh, which I, I I really appreciated. Oh, one common defense of formal poetry is constraint as a stimulus to creativity. For example, having to work hard to find a rhyme word leading to Leading you to a less obvious, more original line than you would yes. have written if you didn't need a rhyme. Um, if you didn't need a rhyme, I just I've been listening to these lectures by um, Jeffrey Hill, and he makes almost exactly that claim. He says the, the primary oh, function of rhyme is as a a stimulus to creativity. So right. that I I certainly understand and have experienced that, but you have I think a pretty smart argument against talking or thinking in that way too much. 
Yeah, and I want to say too. I mean, obviously, who am I to contradict Jeffrey Hill? <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> that would fit. That would be a way to kick off the interview with a bang, wouldn't it? Um, I think I agree with that point of view. It does act as a stimulus to creativity. It does prompt you to think of, oh damn, you know that that word that I was going to use isn't quite the right word, and oh, I'm going to have to get the thesaurus out or down my same even the imagination yeah. and start to think of something new and different and that can take you new places and i do think that that is a creativity enhancing aspect of form but you know i i don't think we should reduce it to a writing prompt yeah. you know there's lots of ways that we can get started or get better at writing poetry but they generally fall away as a scaffold Whereas to me, the rhyme, for instance, or meter, that, that that's intrinsic to the effect. Sure, you know, and so I don't think we want to lose sight or sound of the effect that it has on the reader and indeed the listener, that there's the sonic pleasure of, of chiming, of, of rhyming. And this is part of what creates the... Um, you know, we were talking about hypnosis earlier, the, the slightly hypnotic, trance-inducing aspect of a, of a poetic charm or a spell. You know, that, that's, that's really where the magic of poetry comes from. And I think we're losing sight of that if we just talk about it in terms of a constraint as an enabling to creativity, which is true, but it's, it's much more than that. I think the result is more important than the, than the stimulus, than the input. You, you make a, a smart point, I think, also about how, you know, when we're making chairs or we're practicing some other craft, uh, music, you talk about, uh, I even think um, uh, you know, my sister and her husband are really into uh, mixed martial arts. And I, I just think, about, like, anytime you're practicing an existing mm -hmm. craft, you're not, think, you're not, very seldom are you thinking about, well, what are the rules and how can I follow them? You're thinking about what you're trying to accomplish. You don't, you don't put yeah. somebody in a headlock because that's what you're supposed to do. You do it because you're trying to, you know, gain control of them. You don't, you build a yeah. chair with four legs because yeah. the rule is that it has four legs. It's because you don't want it to fall over. And the yeah. poetry, poetry has for a long time worked in a similar way. We, you know, all of the conventions of the, uh, or poetic devices as we're, we're taught about them in school exist, not just to, uh, in order to satisfy some set of expectations, but because they do cool shit. Right. And it's not like they were, you know, laid down by the, you know, the examining board or the, the Barnabone <laughs> Cricket Club equivalent. who have got the rules of cricket over here. It's this is what came out of poetic practice. Po poets did it because it was cool shit, that it sounded good, that it it created a rhythm, it created an effect in the the mind and and indeed the, the heart and the body of the listener. And they kept doing it because they could see that it it was working, you know, like a, the way a musician would, you know, go, oh, that riff worked. You know, we're going to keep that one tomorrow night. Yeah. Oh, no, exactly. Exactly. And that, and I think the, the connection to live performance is so, I mean, I, I love poetry on the page. I'm very nerdy and, and I, I enjoy poetry. Well, some poetry classes, but I think that, that having, when you really lose a connection to live performance, to, to seeing the effect that what you're doing has on our audience right away, then, then you begin to lose touch with why any of these choices exist in the first place. Because if, you know, as, as, um, they're various, you know, drafts and, you know, quarto versus folio editions of Shakespeare's plays. And people argue about what's the, you know, what's, uh, 
definitive and, and who wrote what. But to me, that it's just evidence that when you're doing a show, you see what effect it has on the audience and you change it the next time to make it a little bit better. And I think that, the, I mean, certainly like the way we do have portrait readings today, but they're so boring and so awful that there's no sense <laughs> that you're responding to like, oh, this got got a laugh or people respond or like people seem confused. There's There's sort of no feedback at all there. Well, I don't know. I think if you, you can have a good crowd and you can have a good reading and there can be a bit of a, if you, if you do this more than once in a while, you can think, okay, I'm going to, that one, that seemed to work. Maybe I will do a bit more of that next time. Do you do a lot of uh, readings? I don't do a lot. I did the first one since the pandemic started back in November, I think it was in London for the Ambit. Uh, Ambit had a launch for the competition issue. And it was so good being in a room with yeah. a, an audience and actually feeling response to a line or two and just, mm -hmm. just you know, just the energy that was in the room. Um, I think partly because we'd all been pent up and right. we hadn't had this for so long. You know, it maybe, takes a pandemic maybe to make even the Brits exciting. were showing yeah. a bit of emotion <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. after a couple of beers. But um, yeah, I think it can be. Um, I mean, we've all been to dead poetry readings yeah um and of course the elephant in the room here is the the spoken word mm -hmm. oh it's where it's all about the, the moment and the performance and the audience reaction um so oh, yeah. i think there's quite a the, the, there's there's a real kind of spectrum i think you know between poets writing for the page and for the eye and maybe for the mind and all the way up to the ear and the body and, <laughs> and maybe the heart is somewhere in the middle what so one of the things i think you identified that has been it's, it's been a little bit of a, a a nagging feeling i've had in reading a lot of poetry particularly by uh i mean in in the u.s poetry became very professionalized i think that's changing now since nobody can get a fucking job but uh, but for a long time, most poets you would have heard of, most poets you would read are people who are well-established in universities. And there's a feeling I often have reading even the work of good poets uh, who, who, you know, very often publish too, too, too much um, and put out books too often. They, are, they have a knack for language. They have a certain set of skills they've built up. They, they're good at what they do, but they are writing poems because writing poems is the thing they are supposed to do. And, and I think yeah. the, it seems almost as if they're, they're finding occasions where, oh, I haven't written a poem about this yet, or, oh, I, mm -hmm. I suppose I should have a, interesting, maybe I haven't done a Villanelle in a while. And, and it seems like the, the, the problem with talking about constraints has something to do with the expectation that you're going to be writing poems anyway. And so now what, what, uh, what new angle can you put on it? What new, uh, you know, s s writing prompt can you find? Uh, and I, I think that it's related also to, you know, poetry being a subject in school that you're, well, you're going to be reading it and you're going to be interpreting it anyway. And so what, what lens are you going to put on it? What style of interpretation are you going to put on it? Yeah, I think you've summed up why I'm not an academic. I mean, I, I did an English degree a long time ago and I got a lot of value in terms of reading and thinking about poetry, but hardly any poems during that period when I was in that mindset. And I realized for me, at least, it was antithetical to actually writing poetry. I can't speak for everyone because for some people it works great, but um, I can certainly 
you know, was it Keats who said, if, if a poem doesn't come as naturally as the leaves from a tree, it had better not come at all. And, and I think this has always been my problem, not just with, say, the professionalization yeah. of poetry, but the whole idea of writing prompts, that yeah. you're going to try and force something out, even if, you know, you're not really feeling it. And there is, a, I guess, there is a time and a place for that to say, look, okay, so today we're going to sit down and we're going to switch off from everything else and see what happens. But... I think it's. Um, I think we've got to be a bit careful about where that initial impetus is coming from. I mean, it's beautifully said. It also seems crazy in a way to to say that poetry should come easily and, and effortlessly, or not at all. Because, of course, you know, maybe unless you are well, Keats or Rambo or somebody, it. Well, sorry. Well, know. I remember there was someone else who said, "Note that he said it comes as naturally as the leaves from the ah, tree." Ah, okay. Not, not right. as not as easily. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so and I probably yeah. mangled the quote, but right, I'm, right, I'm right. pretty. I can't remember who it was who said who was building on that from Keats. Okay. So yeah, it's not. It's not like you know going going down the long slide as Larkin would put it. <laughs> right, you know, it's yeah. not necessarily nice and easy, but there's a okay. kind of a a sense that 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 it's got to come out, you know, it's yeah. spring and it's time for it to come out. And it's like, you know, you, ca you can't push it a week earlier by doing a writing prompt. And of course, you know, the, the leaves on the tree also are not coming out in order to express the feelings of the tree or in order to suit an occasion. They're coming out to keep the thing alive. To, they're coming out for to, a very to, specific To do purpose. the job, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. One of the essays that you cited was this Dana Joya piece um, on poetry as enchantment. And it, it felt a little bit like two or three separate, it's long, I mean, he is a man who, definitely a controversial figure in American poetry, and he, a man who loves the sound of his own voice, even when he's just writing on the page. But I think it's a really terrific essay. Um, mm. So would you give me, so you focused, I think, in, in the section you quoted on sort of the first, maybe half of the essay, he makes this argument about charms and the word Carmen and enchantment. So what is it that you wanted to, to hit from there? And then I have some other questions as well. Well, I just think that he was, he, you know, he'd really picked up on something that just seems to be neglected in poetry that, you know, he said it's, it's almost hiding in plain sight, the sound, the magic, the enchantment of poetry. And as soon as I say those words, you know, I can sure some people are thinking, really, you know, it's like we're going back to the 19th century and Tennyson and all of that, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I yeah. think this is really um, part of the root of poetry. Um, there's actually a terrific book. Let me just, Andrew Welsh wrote this, uh, I think Princeton University in the 70s or the 80s called Roots of the Lyric. Hmm. And he talks about, well, he call, he says primitive poetry and modern poetics. Now, clearly we wouldn't use that kind of language these days sure. to talk about that. But he's talking about, well, where does lyric poetry come from? And he says there are lots of um, aspects, like threads in our culture and prehistory, things like riddles and emblems and ideograms and images and one of them is the charm, yeah, as in the magical spell. And this is yeah. something that art, um, that Joya has picked up on in the essay, and he's, he's really run with that, that there, there is a, a magical um, root of poetry that, and we're not talking about magic trick, we're talking about actual magic. This was yeah. what it was believed to be. And that 
there is still a vestigial element of that available to us through, and it, it, the way that that is conjured is through meter, through rhythm, through form, through rhyme, through repetition, through incantation. And I just thought it was so refreshing and so untrendy of <laughs> joy to, <laughs> to make that argument. It was in the Dark Horse magazine, which is a kind of a, a, a Scottish, it, it straddles the Atlantic. So it's Scotland mm -hmm. and North America, I think. Yeah, no, it's definitely one I've, I've heard of, particularly among uh, formal poets in the US. That, that's yeah. definitely one that's yeah. on their, it's a great that's on their radar. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's, it's a terrific essay. And he, you know, he, he hits the, uh, makes the point that the, the uh, Latin word Carmen, which is all of Catullus poems are referred to as Carmina. Um, but that's you know literally the same word as the word charm. He talks about nursery rhymes and and various little little rhyming traditional wishes and even prayers and sort of you know pagan incantations, something like uh, starlight, star bright, first star I see tonight. I wish I may, I wish I might have the wish I wish tonight. I think is how it goes. But the the, the point being that uh, poetry is both um, historically and maybe. In, you know, intrinsically tied to a feeling of uh, both, you know, charming the the person, but also connecting one's wishes or will to the world. I was especially interested in where he then took this argument later in the essay. He talks about the legacy of the new critics in a way I had not heard them talked about before. Is that... I know they had an enormous impact on the way poetry was taught in the U.S. in the mid 20th century. What was, is that, did they have, I mean, and, and they crossed the Atlantic as well, but how, did that affect British schooling at all the same way? Or what was your experience of that coming it up? It was fairly new to me when I was reading the, the Joya essay. Okay. It didn't seem to me, um, you know, it hadn't really impinged on my consciousness. <laughs> okay. What was so so which could I'm, be I'm, pure ignorance. <laughs> sure, yeah. And the, so it's funny I my mentor was uh in high school was a um woman who had studied at Vanderbilt and knew a lot of the the fugitives and the 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 you know southern agrarian formal poets. Oh, not I mean not all formal poets, but the you know Warren and that group. Um and she was a an evangelist for the new criticism, but in a particular context, which is that in the beginning, the new critics were responding to a kind of a, a Victorian style of teaching poetry, which, as Joya says, was poetry mostly as the, the you know, Lucretius calls it the, the honey around the rim of the glass that's full of wormwood. The, the poetry was sort of what made the spoonful of sugar that made the medicine go down. It was the fun part. It, yeah. it was, it lubricated education. It was, you memorized it, you you learned facts put into verse, sometimes, you know, to the detriment of the facts. Uh, it was a, it was something that you, 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 you maybe learned you know, morals from, or you sighed at sentimentally, and you it was a part of a, a, a national tradition, and it was not especially intellectual. Um, the story I remember hearing about Alan Tate uh, was that when he would begin his poetry classes with undergraduates, he would he would start with a stack of poems, and he would read a poem aloud, and then at the end he would say, wonderful, and then flip to the next one and read it and say, well, that's quite lovely, isn't it? And just he would keep doing this until finally, some of the, and, and he would read a great variety of poems, some good, some bad, mm -hmm. some, 
and he would wait until a student said, well, now, <laughs> is that really as good as the last one? Or like, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh, yes, I guess they're not all the same. Maybe we should talk about that. And that would be the way he'd sort of step into this analytical approach to poetry. You see where mm -hmm. he's coming from, that he was very dissatisfied with his own education of poetry. Um, but Joy's claim is that this, in a way, poisoned poetry going forward, that that he said when it became something that was no longer sort of fun and popular and and um, unintellectual, when it became a subject to study in school with a set of techniques, very quickly he said, he, he, he says the, and this is, you see this in, in almost every intellectual paradigm shifting development, he said, the new critics and their successors changed the way poetry was taught, first in universities and then at lower levels of education. The intellectual revolution of one generation hardened into the pedagogic mm. dogma of another. Classroom instruction gradually narrowed to a few types of textual analysis increasingly taught to students with limited experiential knowledge of poetry. Coursework focused on critical dissection and conceptual paraphrase of printed texts. He goes on to say that, you know, people stopped, poetry stopped being the fun part and it began, it started being a... Uh, a you know a serious subject to to study with you know as you were saying, like almost a scientific approach it, that's not really fair to the new critics and how they approached it but but as he says maybe the new critics weren't the problem but the people who then copied them were the problem it became stiff in the same way that like Stanislavski's approach to acting very quickly became the sort of rigid American method acting um, yeah. which is which is the opposite of what he what he would have wanted so Joya kind of makes an argument not to take poetry out of schools, but maybe to take it out of schools as a subject proper and to treat it more like an extracurricular or a, he, you know, he talks about making it competitive, making it, definitely making it oral again, basically like de-academicizing it. Does that, so what was, I'm curious, your experience with, with, what was it like for you learning poetry in, say, high school or whatever you call it, uh, uh, second, what do you call it there? Secondary school. Secondary school. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Actually, what, what was it like for you? There? Well, I was really lucky. I, I, and I do find a lot of people, you know, it, there can be the, you know, the frost's two paths really at, at that age when you're first introduced to it as a, as a subject at school some people have really bad experiences where it's kind of put on a pedestal and it's been this lofty thing that mortals like us wouldn't understand i had a really amazing experience i had two terrific teachers sudav and jeff riley who would just you know we would spend a whole lesson looking at maybe one or two poems and it just blew my mind that you could have this little square of text and you could look at it for an hour and talk about it and argue about it for an hour and at the end of the hour there would still be more stuff coming out of it it was like you know the magic porridge pot in the fairy tale that it just kept coming and coming and coming and i you know i technically now that would be called close reading um but to me it was just like yeah. looking and and listening and and opening yourself up to the poem and so for me that's where it really began or i guess you could go all the way back to as a kid listening to nursery rhymes and edward lear and so on um but that was certainly the point where i thought wow this is a, an amazing thing i really want to just devote a lot of myself to this to getting good at it um which i think you know I had a mis mixed experience of the academic study at, at undergraduate level, but in a sense, maybe that early experience had inoculated me that 
I wasn't, I was never completely convinced that English literature was an academic subject. I mean, it was convenient that it was because I could spend three years reading poetry. (laughs) But (laughs) um, I think as poets and as readers and, and audiences, we, it's, I think it's fair enough to make it academic study of it because you can study anything and get a lot of, there's a lot you can add to that, but it, it, it can contaminate our practice as poets and our experience as listeners. And I think we need to be quite wary of that. In other words, it could break the spell. And that is, I mean, he, that he, he sort of makes that argument against close reading as a standard in school. I mean, I think I'm with you in that there is, at least for some of us, it can be so fun to get lost in a poem and and to to pull it apart, but also to just sort of savor all of its elements. But I wonder if, I mean, he, he makes a pretty strong case for treating poetry the way you would treat like in, you know, in school, uh, if you have you have either extracurriculars or, or special courses or whatever you want to call them, like you might there may be art, music, uh, even you know, physical education can be sort of like this, where the purpose is not so much a a critical academic comprehension and analysis of it as it is a you know a functional familiarity with a practice. I was I was a drama major and and very and most of that was not. We didn't really focus much on analysis. It was mostly how do you do it, and how do you do it so yeah. that it, so people enjoy it. Uh, yeah, which theoretically is what maybe creative writing departments could do, but it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> like that's what that's not what most creative yeah. writing departments feel like. Well, I think for me the analogy is a lot of too much academic analysis feels like an anatomy lesson. You know, it's taking the the specimen yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and cutting it up and labeling it and uh, attaching Latin names. Whereas to me, I, I think as, as a poet and as a reader of poetry, I'm interested in physiology. You know, how does this thing move and live and breathe? And, and, and how do all these parts come together? Because, you know, you want to observe it in the wild rather than yeah. just kill it and, you know, put it in formaldehyde and dissect it. So you... You also referred to this article by Robert Archambault in the, uh, it was on the Poetry Foundation website, which you're right, I give them so much grief, but they also, you know, they, they are, there's such an enormous resource that it's crazy not to take advantage of, the, you know, all the stuff they provide. Again, I, I think as Cameron said, like their website may be the, the best thing about them. It is great. I mean, yeah. you know, so many times it pops up on Google when you want a good illustration of something. Yeah, no, I mean, God, God, God bless them for that, whatever other um, problems they might have. So this was, and you clearly the connection between these was this question of charm, which Archambault approaches, uh, you know, with maybe a slightly less mystical angle, but it's, it's, it's related. He, he says there are, there are a couple different things we are concerned with when we we're concerned with poetry, and he's talking specifically about conceptual poetry. So yes. what was, yeah, what, what interested you about this piece? Well, what interested me is I think maybe you could you could see conceptual poetry almost as an extreme, you know, the extreme end of where you go when you when you lose touch with the sound and the rhythm and what I've argued and Joya argues is the magic of spoken poetry. Conceptual poetry, you don't even um what's his name? Kenneth Goldsmith. Goldsmith yeah. 
he says, you know, a lot of his stuff, he says, you don't even need to read it. You just need to get the idea of it. And I mean, I'm sorry at that point, you know, the poem has evaporated. Um, <laughs> and and yeah. it's kind of interesting. But, you know, as Archambault says, it's interesting to know that somebody has done this and has pursued yeah. it because, you know, God bless them. It's, it's, <laughs> I guess somebody had to ask the question. But it, it, Archambault says, you know, but we lose the charm aspect. And I think maybe he's talking about just personal charm rather than yeah. magical charm. But again, it's a continuum. And to me, that is, if you like, the, an extreme case of what has happened with a lot of uh, so-called free verse, non-metrical verse, um, non-rhyming, non-formal, in inverted commas. And I want to say, you know, I do like this kind of verse as well. I write it myself. A lot of my best friends write it too. I'm not <laughs> hating on it. <laughs> but it's the danger to me is you can, it, you, it can end up being quite cerebral, that you yeah. end up with something that is, looks easy on the eye, on the page, and provokes interesting thoughts in your mind, but maybe doesn't touch your heart, let alone the solar plexus. You know, I, I just think that's something for us to to be aware of and, and watch out for. And, um, you know, when I wrote to you and I said, well, to me, formal poetry isn't like you. I'm not keen on the, the connotations of formal, as in formal dress, formal attire, for sure, yeah. conservatism and so on. And I, I was listening to the conversation between you and Austin and I thought, well, what? why do I like so-called form, formal poetry so much? What has it got that the other kind hasn't? And to me, it's energy. And that was why I said to me, it's like it's poetry with a pulse. Yeah. And I mean that in terms of just the, the basic metrical beat, a pulsing sound, but obviously that I, th I think the connotations are more accurate, that yeah. there is a pulse, there's an energy, there's a living uh, beat in uh, a metrical poem. And this is precisely what's missing with... You know, by the time you get to conceptual poetry, it's it's completely disembodied, uh, and I find it weird that, you know, for instance, when it comes to music, imagine pop music or rock music or dance music <laughs> without a regular beat. It just wouldn't work, would it? Oh, God. and yet, and that is supposed to be the subversive, unconservative type of uh, music. You know, right. and, but it's the, the polar opposite in poetry. As soon as you introduce the regular beat, you're supposed to be sat there in, you know, in, in tweed jackets and a kind of an Edwardian <laughs> cottage harking back right. to the age of Tennyson. Yeah, you cite so, this totally insane law. You said here in the UK, when the conservative government government wanted to clamp down on rave culture in 1994, they introduced the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, which gave police the power to shut down any gathering where 20 or more people were listening to music in quotes, wholly or predominantly characterized by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats, which is fucking, I can't believe that was a law. What? Yeah, well, what? We, well, I must admit, you know, there, there was, a, there was a, a vigorous debate about that because it was clearly insane. I'm very skeptical of any argument in any direction that a, an art form is intrinsically subversive or conservative, but it was the conservatives yeah. who passed this law, <laughs> you know? Right, I mean, they, they were, and it, it was that specific regular beat which was the thing they honed in on you know and in poetry if you're sitting in a you know room listening to poetry with a regular metrical beat then you're assumed to be 
you know, pretty conservative minded. But if it's music, then police can kick the door down and arrest you and your friends. I read an essay the other day. I didn't, I didn't want to send it to you at the last minute because it, it was a long one and I only read it yesterday. But but it, there's a, a, lo a lot of, uh, it, was a, it was an argument in defense of formal poetry. And, and it was largely in terms of uh, how, which Austin did a little bit as well, about how formal poetry is really is really what's subversive. You talk about po formal poetry as being the counter-cultural counter or alternative. Um, I think your approach is maybe fairer because you're really just saying the convention is free verse. This is a different Right, thing. exactly. And so in that sense, and, it is an, an, an alternative. And I want to, you know, I use that word counter-cultural. I know it's got connotations, but trying to use it reasonably neutrally just in the sense that <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. clinically countercultural. Clinically, it's an alternative to 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 the mainstream convention. Just as free verse, once upon a time, was the radical alternative to the to the stifling convention, and it had sure. become stifling and yeah. soporific and stultifying and and lots of other words beginning with S. But I just feel, um, again, I'm not. I don't want to hate on free verse, but it is it is the prevailing convention and. Yeah. I think sometimes it helps to look outside of that. So my experience in school was that the the poetry that was dominant in the school I went to was post-language poetry, very kind of, I thought of it as no nonsense poetry. And it was smart in some ways, but it was uh, not fun or enchanting or sexy or memorable. And so I think... That was when that was a time when like Ron Silliman had his whole screed against the, what he called the school of quietude, which was you know largely free verse but very straightforward, accessible lyric poems that aimed to stir an emotion, and that was the tension between poetry that that didn't make sense but was but was smart and uh, provocative, and poetry that that made sense but was boring. And I, my, my, you know, my sympathies went uh, went out to the boring poetry just because I could follow it. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, today there's plenty of poetry that is that is pretty. I don't know that it's accessible, but it's not it's not trying to play language games in the same way. It, but it but it seems to be very um, sentimental and. Uh, often, you know, self-indulgent or or just sort of a you know like a new form of uh, a, a new form of confessionalism that maybe sometimes more grounded in identity. Talking to this very young um, uh, British poet uh, I corresponded with through the podcast, his attitude has been that uh, that he's much more interested in poetry that sort of uh, linguistically. Uh, challenging. That's that's a little bit more difficult, a little bit thornier, and I think, you know, it's it's not that he and I necessarily have radically different tastes. It's just that something else was the prevailing norm when he, yeah, you know, at the moment than it was when I was mm -hmm. a kid. And I, uh, I wonder about that with with you. Was you know you've talked about your response to some of your good teachers and bad teachers. Was there a, I mean, so many of these schools or these arguments or these wars, to me, they seem like they often boil down to a particular either reader or writer 
being annoyed by what was popular at the moment <laughs> and then and then sort of ex extrapolating from that a whole theory so it was you you may you seem like you maybe are, are a little more allergic to theory because you're more interested in the simply in the practice but was your did you have any personal experience of that any sense that like what what stifled or chafed you know uh, you other than other than just teachers who who weren't necessarily as interested in in the fun of poetry that's a really interesting question i don't think i was necessarily chafing against something but so from memory the the poems that we were studying at school at secondary school that really got me excited were ted hughes mm. who actually lived down the road from me in north devon and, and who also was, he, he was also one who said poetry poems are spells i believe is what he said yeah he was he was he was very much into the whole shamanistic thing sure. <laughs> and for a long time you know i read hughes because i it was very relatable very vivid very magical i guess but it actually took me quite a while to realize that he was a horrendous formal influence on me because he wrote nearly all in free verse mm -hmm. and i just couldn't it i just couldn't get on with that thing and it was only when i later on when i i got i think i got some feedback that this what i thought was doggerel was actually no there is something there you know you should do more of that you that sounds like more your thing yeah, so I'm. I wonder because I have this this problem, and I know a lot of people, a lot of poets I know who wrote write mostly in meter and rhyme had the same problem, which is that you know I wrote a lot of free verse poetry early on, and then had a little bit of a a, a turn and and really fell into form pretty deeply, and I now find it almost impossible to compose in free verse. I mean, I, I can I can break something up and mess with it once I've written it in form, yeah. but I I feel like I've lost any instinct for how to compose. You do, you do seem to toggle back and forth between the two. Is that is there any method or experience of that, or is it just does it all just come to you naturally as the leaves on a tree? No, if I wish, <laughs> I wish, but I'm not Keats. Um, <laughs> Actually, it has to be a conscious decision now to write in free verse. I okay. think my default is metrical. And sometimes I have to notice, or occasionally my mentor Mimi Calvati will notice for me that actually this poem really wants to be in free verse and mm -hmm. just let it let it do that. Um, but I, yeah, I, th I think naturally I, I gravitate towards the, the meter. And it's it's more of a yeah it's a conscious departure if I'm doing free verse these days. I know uh, supposedly Lowell would during at least parts maybe it was this may have been more middle period but he would write in regular meter and rhyme and then revise ignoring that form and so he you know you would, you would oh, still have a lot of the. A, a lot of that would be present in a palim, you know, like a palimpsest. But you'd, you'd also, uh, he would allow himself then to have passages that broke, broke loose. It's the, the 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 cliche is hard to avoid. I, I almost want to say broke free, but it's not. That's not quite right. I mean, the same with the free verse it's, already has it has a has is a propagandistic term in itself. Yeah, yeah, but I see what you mean, and actually that makes sense. Reading a lot of Lowell's stuff is because you even if you can't always scan it, you never 
quite get the sense that it there's always a the after image or the would you say the palimpsest yeah. of the metrical template there yeah which i mean as uh, my friend jonathan and, and other people have noted there there is a real difference between you know first or second generation free verse and contemporary free verse and that they they had the the skeleton of form by heart already and so yeah. it yeah. they're you can still feel that they are you know shaking a thing off rather than having nothing to shake off at right. all maybe there's an analogy with digital natives digital native yeah what would that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Not quite sure which way it would work. Yeah, and, and I'm not, you know the I'm not idea sure that be... our children—they've just—they've never known a world without all these screens and digital stuff. Whereas, for me at least, it was—it um, was this wave that kind of came over the culture. Yeah, I mean, and there is, you know, the same way that, like, when you you see in early, there are certainly exceptions, like you know, uh, so I think Sophocles in particular comes to mind. But like a, a lot of early drama. Uh, especially think of like Seneca, you know, it was a little later, but feels sort of like tandem storytelling where you kind of switch from one speaker to another and they kind of, they go on at length making, making their case or telling their tale. And it takes a while for the medium to find its, its own natural rhythm. And it's like when you early television shows felt like stay i mean they were teleplays they were plays that were yeah. then filmed yeah, yeah, and yeah. put on yeah. you know because we were used to the old medium and i do think that for a lot of people who do who didn't grow up already immersed in in computers and the internet there's a, there's a there's a kind of a kludgy feeling of like transposing one way of doing things onto a new format yes that's with, a wonderful sorry go ahead yeah please Sorry, the, the thing that comes to mind there is there's a place called Ironbridge Gorge, Ironbridge Gorge in the Midlands in England, which is supposed to be the cradle of the Industrial Revolution, where they mm. started smelting iron and doing it on an industrial scale. Mm. And they've got the first all-iron bridge. Oh. But they made it the same way you would make a wooden bridge. You know, you would get all these planks and you would overlay them and just, oh, it's man. just a delightful That's thing. amazing. It's just if you, I don't know, if you Google it, just Iron Bridge, Gorge Bridge. And um, and you can see that they, because they were assuming, yeah, I guess there, there was just so many assumptions embedded in the structure of the bridge that you would have to, like, for instance, lay the, the plank. You couldn't have them all together because, right. you know, one. They didn't, they didn't know how the to wood, take advantage you know, the of the grain of, of the wood. I, I mean, I'm not a carpenter, but there's yeah, certain yeah. things you have to do about the way you lay planks of wood together or wooden beams together to allow right. for the properties of wood that just didn't apply to iron. And it was only later on they realized, oh, we can just have a, like a flat bridge, for instance. No, I mean, that, that totally makes sense. And of course, you know, later on, one of the part of what something like iron allows you to do is you can you can use the new medium in a more elegant way once you get used to that rather than trying to um, impose an old way of doing things on the new medium. What I wonder about is where is that elegance and innovation in free verse poetry? And I don't know, you would, in a way, like, I don't see, with the exception maybe of like typographical innovation, which always feels so, 
underwhelming to me. Like, I don't know, like, <laughs> you know, typographical whimsy just feels like, okay, well, you can put it anywhere on the page. Like, who fucking cares? Like, well, where, like, where is the, where, where are the, the suspension bridges or the new elegant constructions for free verse natives? I, I don't know. What, what do you see? I'm not sure about native. Well, if you just maybe set aside the natives sure. question, yeah, yeah, yeah. but just specifically, what are the opportunities of free verse and how has that been realized? I think there's certainly a, maybe a heightened awareness of lineation and line breaks and how they can function because you can't, particularly when you're looking, you know, writing or reading for the eye. Yeah. And, you know, those, there's some wonderful moments where, you know, the end of the line and the, the word that appears on the next line, you can have all kinds of effects there. I think maybe because you don't have meter to play with in terms of establishing the sonic pattern of the line so much that maybe that comes to the fore. And I yeah. think, you know, I mean, you look at Williams's little poems that, that just, they're, they're just so, you know, there's so much depends upon. I know that's, yeah. but it's actually, I guess, if we're going back to the bridge analogy, there's quite a lot depending on the way oh, he oh, arranged yeah. the words on that page. And I think there's a, a delicacy and a strength yeah. that comes from that, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to get to if you had meter because you'd be focused on that more. Right. Yeah. And no, I mean, I think that's, that probably is fair, but it, it's in the same way that like slant rhyme, at least in part developed from the great vowel shift that like it, that we, right. we started encountering right. words that they were originally true rhyme, but then we get to right. encounter them as slant rhymes and we kind of discover a new, you know, subtle flavor in that, variation the mm. same way that i think probably a lot of free verse came out of uh translation you know that we were reading a poem that had been translated into into a new language without preserve you know in a more literal way and so suddenly we see oh well, this this is actually sort of sort of it so like if you take a poem and rather than trying to build a new poem in meter and rhyme if you just try to translate the lines line by line that's going to even if even if you're translating a perfectly formal poem it's going to render it into a new thing and yeah and so i think that's yeah. you can see how that kind of experience would lead one to say well i i didn't know this was a thing you can do but now that i'm looking at it it's kind of cool i kind of like it and that's i think you're probably right that the the real the real innovations of free verse are probably are probably visual they probably are on the page and, and i do i know what you mean about the pleasure of looking at a really spare poem on a big white space but it is I mean, to return to the joya it's it, maybe you do sort of have to lose you have to step away from poetry out loud you have to step away from the the incantation in order to in right. order to appreciate that for itself and i think that's cool and that's a great thing to do yeah. and <laughs> and you know metrical verse can opens up you know the door on to incantation and charm and rhythm and so on. I mean, at the minute I'm doing an occasional concrete poetry project with a, an artist where we're, well, when I say we, I mean she, Sheena Devitt, right, yeah, yeah. she's carving the words into stone and we're coming up with a, a sculptural concept. And of course there's no incantation or meter or right. rhythm in that. We're, we're looking purely at the, the visual tactile element. And that's a great thing to, you know, to have a door onto that aspect of poetry. 
And, and so when you say concrete, because actually there was an example I wanted to, when you say concrete poetry, you mean something specific that is a little different from what I initially learned concrete poetry as. When I learned the term concrete poetry, what I understood that to mean was poetry that made some kind of visual presentation on the page and that the visual presentation was as important as the verbal content and you know uh, easter wings being like a, you know herbert yeah. example yeah absolutely um, and yeah. then this is actually a poem that by a a alice allen who's um if you don't know what the oh, podcast yeah. poetry says is worth checking out um oh, she's okay. a, an australian poet but i i quite like this um poem from her first book i don't know if you can see it well but um it's it just fills the whole page <laughs> and it's just is it, yeah is it, it work it's you know, so it says it's 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 in a series of sort of periods, but it's it says birth 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 you know filling up several oh, lines and then it shifts to school 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 and then work 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 is most of the page and then the end is just death 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 death. Oh, that is and delightful. It's, yeah, it's just it's you know wall to wall fills the fills the page, mm. and it's you know you wouldn't read it word by word straight across, but you you look over right. the page and you exactly. gain something yeah. from it, and that's something you yes. you couldn't do that auditorially and you do need no. to you know sit and look at a page so so that's a that is a kind of poetry on the page that is you know i wouldn't even know that i would call that free verse it's almost a separate thing but but that's what i had always yeah. thought of concrete poetry as you're talking about something very different well i think it's kind of the same it's all it's on the same continuum so to me concrete poetry is just where the concrete expression of the poem is salient so okay the print you know the, the visual presentation on the page i think is mm -hmm. that is is one obvious way of doing that but it could also be painted or sculpted or embroidered or i don't know if you've come across in hamilton finlay's garden little sparta where it, up near edinburgh in scotland no. well sheena showed me this I've, I've never seen it but it's obviously this is hard for Listeners sure. to imagine, but there's a, if you can see that photo, it oh. is a set of stones on a hillside with words carved in the stones. And the idea is that he's not saying that, you know, this is a version of the poem carved in stone. He's saying that this is the poem right. and that the hillside and even the mountains in the distance are the page. And so when you walk around in his garden, he, he'll have poems appearing carved in you know the the banisters of a bridge or in the bridge itself there are some poems that are they're carved in wood or stone but they're only legible because they're carved in reverse when you look at the reflection in the water oh wow and so it's That's like goodness. a hide and seek game but when you walk around the garden you are inside poetry which i think is a yeah, you know, I mean, so which, and you great. could almost say you're you're also inside sculpture. You're also inside like, do you know? Um, is right. his, I'm trying to remember his name. Is it Andy Goldsworth? Is that the guy? Yeah, Andy Goldsworthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, yeah, it's an, an immersive uh, experience, which also you know maybe less less abruptly than with some of his sculptures uh, will change in a road over time. You know, it'll be different depending yeah. on the conditions yeah. in the moment as well as you know over you know as it as it uh, is exposed to the elements over time. Um, so you, but you're, would you describe, uh, as I, I saw one photograph of one of your concrete poems, would you describe kind of in particular what these, what at least one of them looks like or what some of this collaboration looks right. like? Right. So we, we've just got one finished at the moment. Um, it's 
we did it for a an exhibition about endangered species mm. and of course you know when i heard about that we got the list of endangered species i say oh you know could we do the i know the fox or the lion or something exciting <laughs> but sheena it was a bit more subtle she said no let's do moss because moss oh. is often overlooked yeah, yeah, apparently yeah, yeah. moss is foundational for all kinds of ecosystems if the moss disappears then lots of other the bigger critters are going to disappear soon and it's so, extremely fragile too and so we we work together we kind of developed it by email and conversation this idea of what we were going to do and she's got this beautiful piece of sandstone and she chiseled it all over so that's the texture of moss which was a huge amount of work oh, God, and yeah. we had we had the words moss appearing going all the way down the stone and it's kind of mesmerizing when you look at it because it's just yeah, like yeah, that yeah. repeated texture of moss a bit like amy's poem yeah, and yeah, yeah. um but as you go down the as you go down the stone the letters start disappearing yeah and so the moss is going missing and near the bottom it says miss so we call that oh, wow. elegy for moss um because it looked and it also looks a bit like a headstone and that's and again that's, that's something... one you couldn't you wouldn't read that left to right the way you'd read no, a sentence no i couldn't yeah. no there's no there's no auditory component for that and yeah. i think this is really one of the things that i love about poetry so much is it, it's almost like an amphibious art form you know, it could be in the land or on the air. It can be in the ear or in the eye. And you can go, you can go all the way up to the conceptual cerebral yeah, yeah. Um, isthmus or peninsula, if you like, on one hand, or you can go all the way into the concrete expression, or you can go into the sonic dimension where it becomes a sound. It, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways of, lots of different rooms that we can enter in the house of poetry. Yeah, and well, and that's, I think that's a, um... That's a point that Archambault makes in the Charmless and Interesting uh, piece on conceptual poetry, which is that I think it's very easy to make fun of conceptual poetry. And Kenneth Goldsmith is, is, is currently very out of favor because he, uh, yeah. he did the, the Body of Michael Brown poem, which seemed yeah, to be sure. almost, um, he, he seemed almost to describe the reason that was a bad idea to begin with because he, he said, that conceptual poetry should not try to do anything. It should not try to should not try to be you know activist poetry, or should not try to to um, take up a cause, but should sort of exist in this stasis on its own. And he seemed to he seemed not to take his own advice and then to make this sort of grotesque misstep with that poem. Yeah, but I think it, it, it's easy it is as it is to to dismiss or make fun of conceptual poetry, especially now when it's a little less fashionable. Uh, I think Archambault is right that while it is certainly charmless, it is interesting. And at least people like you and me find it, you know, like it's irritating as I find Kenneth Goldsmith. I'm, I was interested to learn about what he's doing. And it's sort of, it's a curious yeah. thing to turn over in one's mind. But that, mm -hmm. that distinction that Archambault makes, I think clarifies maybe some of what Joy is also getting at, which is that it's great for poetry to be interesting it's also great for it to be charming and we may have uh we may have um at least in our academic treatment of it privileged the former at the advantage of the at the disadvantage of the latter we may have too much expected it to be because it's it's it probably it can be charming to a very wide audience it's probably only going to be interesting to a relatively small number of people right Right. And and maybe that's there's the that's the um as as much as I find Joya irritating at times, I think he makes a pretty good argument for 
for letting poetry be for for letting charm lead the way when it comes to yeah. popular introduction to poetry, you know, poetry for kids, for students, for a for a non academic audience, and there there will always be room for for uh, even, for poetry and nerds. Even for to adults, think about, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I think you know why why should we be denied the pleasure? You know, you know. Oh the, God, yeah. Yeah. The frost, you know, the famous frost line, you know, poetry begins in delight and ends in wisdom. It almost feels like, well, we're, we're kind of puritanically, puritanically skipping the delight because we yeah. feel we should be doing something more serious. And I think one of the things about poetry is it's like music. It gives a lot of pleasure. Yeah. And, 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 and it doesn't detract from, you know, if you like the high seriousness or the intellectual endeavor and so on. I don't think it's a it's a dichotomy, you know. Just, no. just the way Larkin said, you know, the trouble with being funny is people think you're not being serious. He said, that's a risk you take, you know? And you could yeah. say that, you know, the, the trouble with trying to be, to have a spell, to have something that is charming in the original sense is that people will dismiss it as, you know, nursery rhyme fodder. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and that is, you know, if, if as much as it is anything else, uh, Joy's essay is a pretty good argument for hip hop being the thing that is maybe going to save poetry because it's something people right. find charming and entrancing and don't need to be convinced to, to right. sit down and study. They, you, you, know, the, the, and you don't it, need to be told why it's good and why you should no. like it. And you I could imagine, you, like you could imagine a, a sort of a deadly academic project that would be, let's bring hip hop into schools and let's put it in class. Let's, let's study this. You could, and you could no, very quickly. And suddenly it would be the least cool thing ever. Oh God, it? you could, yeah, you could, you could really poison it. And I, you know, it's funny, even like, because I, as a, as a kid, especially because of my mentor was kind of thought of myself as a champion of new criticism, which was totally out of vogue when I was in school. But again, what I was most interested in was reading the actual poems. And when I was coming up, the the, the prevailing attitude was that the, the only way to study literature was uh, by way of critical theory. Um, so that you were, you, you were interested in the, the larger social, historical, uh, economic yeah. and philosophical implications of the work rather than in the work itself. And to, to me, the appeal of new criticism was not that it was analytical. It was not that it was it was uh, it was stuffy and more concerned with the interest than the charm. It was that you were looking at the actual poems. You were right, you know, rather than reading that's... books about books about books about poems. Exactly, exactly. That's why I ran a mile from theory when I was at college. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to uh, just because it's a it's a I'm I'm curious specifically, and you brought up this uh, this play by Young Jean Lee, who's so brilliant and so frustrating at times. I, I tend to find her work like, I'm always interested in what she's doing, even if sometimes it seems idiotic, because uh, she can be so brilliant at times. So you saw the play Straight White Men that she mm -hmm. uh, did a few years ago. I That's one I, I've heard about, but I didn't, maybe just because I, I my eyes immediately glazed over, because I've, I've been overexposed to straight white men in my own mm -hmm. experience, obviously. Yeah. So I did, I, I've not read that one or seen it, what I'm just curious. What was that like? Could you give a little, uh, a little brief re review or account of it? Yeah, and so the reason I mentioned it to you is because I was just thinking about the idea of because very often the the discourse around form is if if you are using a traditional form, then you're pre you're assumed to be harking back 
to the Edwardian or the Victorian or the Elizabethan age or even further. And it's supposed to be a nostalgia trip. But to me, it's a little insulting to assume that if somebody's writing in a traditional form in the 21st century, that they're not aware that the context has shifted. And the context <laughs> right. is always a big part of that. Yeah. Um, and so the another example that came to mind was Terence Hayes' book, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this is, and they are sonnets, and they look like sonnets, but he, he's preface some American sonnets, which is mm -hmm. drawing attention to the context. And it's a black poet writing in the age of Trump. Mm -hmm. So there's something unsettling and destabilizing about the positioning of sonnets there. And I think and, there's what, what a call me, because I believe the American sonnets was, I mean, I know. Um, oh, that's right. That's right. What's his name? From, yeah. uh, there was yeah. also Gerald Stern uh, did American sonnets and his were all, they were even more looser than, than Hayes's. But I think there's like, you're right that he's distinguishing, you know, this is not sonnets, it's not English sonnets or Italian sonnets, this is American sonnets. And so there's a little bit of a tradition there, but then he's got his own, his own angle. Right. But it's just that the, the, the context changes the way the form is perceived. And it's like, well, what are we to make of the sonnet? Is, is he critiquing it? Is he embracing it? Is he reinventing it? Is he, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe he's doing all of those things, but, and that was why the young Gene Lee example came to mind because I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, but when you, you can, walk you in, we'd spoil things all the it's time quite in your face. There's, okay. um, there's loud pulsating music. There are non-binary people who are literally in the face of the audience. And it's, it's kind of glorious really, but it's not, it's not for the faint hearted. Yeah. And, and it sounds, it kind of screams, this is not going to be your traditional, you know, theater as heritage evening. Sure. And then embedded within that, there is a fairly straight narrative play about straight white men and it's got an all-male cast, and they're, they're all white. And yet the other framing kind of comes in, at, I think that comes in about halfway through and also at the end. So you never quite forget that this is taking, this apparently straight play in, in every sense, it's kind of linear yeah. and whatever, it's taking place in a, in a fairly raucous and disruptive context. And so yeah. that changes the framing of all the way through you can't forget what what has just come before even though you're looking at these two bros arguing on the sofa together so they're and they I don't is it that, like they don't seem as much like a like a default they they seem more like a specific choice well, or if you had if you had the play i mean if you had the same play yeah. without the framing device it would be a completely different play just because she's inviting us to look at this and consider this as straight white men. Right. You know? This, so this is a specific thing rather than being like the background radiation, like no, because I, I know plenty of people talked about like maleness or whiteness has been treated for a long time as the, as like a, as a blank, as, a, as like, right. Not even That's, a choice, yeah. not even a specific. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, identity. It, it, it's the background against which everything else or everyone else is judged. And yet this was flipping it around and, and showing yeah. them against a very different background. I mean, I've edited poetry magazine. I know you have as well, I think. Yeah. And so some of what appears in the post bag is formal verse written by people who clearly haven't read much modern poetry. Right. Oh yeah, certainly. 
Yeah. And you can see that. And it, there's, a, there's a kind of, oh, okay, so there's a bit of catching up to do for this person if they want yeah. to, you know, play in this space. But yeah, I mean, but what the, you're the, talking about, sorry. No, well, just because like very seldom have I read a, a piece of formal verse that I thought was perfectly realized and all that it was lacking was a an awareness of the contemporary culture that, that typically like it's it's not just that they're not up to date culturally or historically it's also that the poem's not so great on its own like you know it's, I, I don't I, I don't like I, I won't like see a poem and think like oh this would have been a a perfectly realized formal piece of piece of poetry a hundred years ago but today it's missing something i think it, it typically it's already missing some other things as well <laughs> oh yeah yeah i think that's that's a fair point but i was just really just thinking about that they were using the form naively like mm -hmm. without an awareness that there was an alternative whereas yes. anyone writing formal poetry now who's yeah. kind of alert to what's going on right. it's a conscious choice they've made they know they could be writing something else yeah. And therefore, you could say that 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 there there should be a, a ideally and maybe a creative tension or at least a, a dialogue going on between that context and yeah. what uh, 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 and the form you know which is inherent in what the poet's putting out there. Does no, that, that yeah that, that that made sense though. You know, no, actually, that makes a lot of sense, and and it also uh, clarifies, I think, what what is not remarked upon quite enough, which is that most free verse poets today are writing free verse naively they're not choosing Ooh. to write free verse they're just it's just the thing that you do it's the way that like i used to teach yeah. um, english at a little ballet conservatory and it was overwhelmingly girls but there were you know a few boys in every class and like by the time i got them they were 17 or 18. if you're a boy in the west taking ballet by the time you're 17 or 18, like you're tough as nails. Like you, you know, yeah, like yeah, you, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. they were not accidentally taking ballet. Like this is not like they were like, oh, I was playing football because it's just the thing you do. It's like you, they were making a choice to do it. And I think yes. there is something, you know, if you're, if you're a poet who has any exposure to the culture at large and you are still writing formal poems as a grown up, you've made some choices to do that. Whereas I think yes. the converse is not at all true for most free verse poets. And the stance could be different. It could be ironic. It could be deliberate contrast. Which, which could it be ironic. Could, or... Sorry, the stance of the poet using a form. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Or it could be, it just could be a little more subtle. It could be, well, you know, here, because I think when you, you build a, a house, like if you think of a poem as a house, mm -hmm. you're always aware that it's a house of cards. It's going to fall down. Yeah. And so there's a, there can be a poignancy in making something that is all four square and um look so solid and yet you know we know we know what the, the inevitable fate is going to be right which is i mean which is you know was, was one of the one of the, the the classic subjects of lyric poetry since forever right yeah but this is yeah exactly this is extremely, yes. yeah this is totally ephemeral i was just gonna say that you you actually because terence hayes's book is one i have very mixed feelings about because it's so good where it's good and i i think sloppy in many places and it was written very very quickly i would say hurriedly but something that he does preserve from the sonic tradition that has often been neglected in in recent memory is the sequence that mm. as with shakespeare or dante or um petrarch he is writing 
relatively quickly a series of sonnets that are all they're not all about the same thing but they have a a sort of a slowly shifting set of concerns and in some ways you can see him taking a few different runs at a similar topic in the same way that like the first what is it 15 14 or 15 sonnets of shakespeare's are all the same argument basically and yes. that's like that's Ad a cool Museum. that is a really cool thing about that book is, is that that you that we have kind of lost in a lot of contemporary sonnets we don't see that quite as often as we we used to so i, I have to give hayes real credit for that and also here's, here's another thing i noticed at the end at least in the the british edition we've got the sonnet index which mm -hmm. has got the first line of all the sonnets right but delightfully he's arranged it in pages of 14 lines each so each Oh, so that each I don't one think that's in my edition. Well, the effect yeah. is you could read the index like another collection of sonnets, which yeah. is a mashup of lines from the other sonnets, you know, which again, you know, that wouldn't have happened in 1692. No, yeah, that's a that's a typographical but, innovation. Yeah, you need right, you so need that's that, but that's a kind of postmodern, playful, you know, that that's form, but with an eye to the fact that there are alternatives and. Yeah, yeah. Postmodernism has such a um, a complicated <laughs> reputation and has, can be so annoying. But I think you you do in your in your note you, you do make I think a, a a really worthwhile point, which is that you said postmodernism is not nearly as puritanical as modernism in what is in in what is considered formally acceptable. In many different art forms, postmodernists habitually use traditional forms in ways that are superficially straight, but that undercuts or reframe them in various ways. And you talk about Pulp Fiction, and then and that's when you bring up the straight way. But that that is right. Yeah. That like I've certainly like when postmodernism, as in like the the Norton anthology of postmodern poetry, when it's institutionalized, it's it's sort of dreadful. But you're right that that as with as with like, you know, Joy would say very old fashioned approaches to poetry, the best of postmodernism is about having fun. Yeah, and I certainly wouldn't go the whole hog with it, but I do like <laughs> the playfulness and the, the freedom. Um, and the, the fact that you can relish, I don't know, a, a, a good old music hall tune, <laughs> while at yeah. the same time still being quite arch clever about it. I and mean, you can have your cake and eat it. So you, as you said, you, you, you have this practice of um, coaching uh, artists and you have a, a podcast that is that sort of has something like that as its focus, the 21st century creative, is that? Well, that's that's my... Well, that, I was going to say that's your, you have a newer one that's about poetry that I wanted to distinguish. Have, yeah, yeah. But, so the poetry podcast might be more mouthful of more air of interest. So I stole the title from Yeats, mm -hmm. um, where he said in one of his poems, inevitably to Maud Gone, he said, um, "I I made it out of a mouthful of air." Talking about the poem, they take this song and weigh it with the great and the pride. I made it. I made it out of a mouthful of air, yeah. and I just love that. Um, Emphasis on the ephemerality and the physicality of a poem, that that's what it is made of and that's where it came from. And it struck me that a podcast is the perfect medium to get back to the oral roots of poetry. Yeah. Where you've got, you know, in the back old, in the good old days, it would have been the bard or the scald uh, in the mead hall while you were around yeah. the you know, around the fire and you hear this voice in your ear and it transports you. Mm -hmm in the joy and sense. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have a podcast where we do that? And, and so what I do is I mix up, I alternate old and new poems. So I have uh, a lot of old stuff like Shakespeare and um, 
Yeats and Thomas Wyatt and Emily Dickinson and so on. And then I alternate that with a contemporary poet. And every episode, the first thing you hear is the poem, mm -hmm. because you shouldn't have to have it explained to you if it's any good. <laughs> you shouldn't you shouldn't have to be told why it's why it's good or what to look out for. If 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 it doesn't give you a visceral or emotional response at first prime, then maybe that's the poet's fault rather than yours. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And then we have a bit of context. So if, if the poet's alive, then I'll interview them about the poem and I'll ask where did it come from and how did the form evolve? And, and I get all kinds of interesting responses to that. If they're dead, I have to kind of wing it and I, <laughs> I come up with my own ideas and, and I just talk about what I think Shakespeare's doing with the turn here or um, what Wyatt's doing with Rhyme Royal and harking back to Chaucer and so on. Um, and, but again, it, it, I guess it's close reading in podcast form because I'm, I'm really focusing on hopefully the, the physiology rather than the anatomy, how the poem works, how it fits together. And then at the end of the, each episode, you will hear the poem again. And the idea is that it should sound different the second time you hear it because of that added context. And, you know, it's quite, it's a little bit of a magic eye idea. That, oh, yeah. That I mean, things I, that I, jump out at you. Oh, yeah. I really appreciate that too, just because I have such a hard time following poems read aloud that my, in, in any context, what I always want is, no, wait, let me hear it again. So I, I think yes. that, that helps a, a lot because just hearing it the once, it's, it's so easy for it to just slip past. This is something that it feels like you're doing really, oh, I'm also aware of something it feels like you're doing sort of really purely out of a love of poetry that it doesn't really so I mean so much of poetry conversation at least over here feels like networking and this to you this right. is purely a whether it's contemporary poetry or uh old dead guys poetry it uh it really just feels like something you you're doing purely out of the love of it and I'm sure you and a lot of listeners will relate to this very often I'm the guy who reads poetry in in the circle of friends and oh, like among your friends, you're the, the one yeah, poetry yeah. guy. Among the non-poetry friends, right? <laughs> yeah. Being the odd one out. And most people, most of the time, will read just about anything but poetry. Yeah. And I would just I just think people are missing out. So I just want to take a poem down from the shelf and read it and just say, look, isn't this great? Look, notice what he or she's done here. It doesn't, isn't that fantastic? And it's the same, you know, having because a lot of the first poets who've been on the show are poets that I've known for a while, that I mm -hmm. kind of grew up in workshops together, sitting in a workshop, just listening to an amazing evening's worth of entertainment, which is what I've often experienced over the years, just thinking, really, this should be more widely known. You know, I don't yeah. think it's that hard for normal people, in inverted commas, to get what is great about this poem. And so that's what I want to do with the podcast. I mean, obviously I want to have enough. I don't want to dumb it down. This is the challenge. Yeah. I want to make sure that there's enough for the hardcore poetry geek yeah. to be interesting. But again, to me, that's the challenge. I think you can, and I talk about all the technical aspects of the poem, yeah. you know, meter and form and lineation and enjambment and all of that. But I just think you, it's, if you approach it from the way the poet approaches it, which is as a, as a craft rather than yeah. an academic discipline, I think it's it's not that hard for people to relate to and, and grasp. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. That is the what today feels almost like a fantasy is uh, a healthy readership of poetry that are that are not all poets themselves. 
That's that is I the think dream. So. Yeah. It is. And just for it to be one of the things that people notice and enjoy, like pop music or movies or yeah. the theater, you know? It's not, without, yeah, and um, it, with, without feeling an obligation to to satisfy some critical duty to it, just to be able to, right, to enjoy the, it, and then maybe somehow, imp- yeah, learn more if if they want to. Yeah, or rather than the idea that it's it's good for you, and you should spoon this down. You know, yeah. any any uh, any off the cuff a poem or a, or a, a, a something you're reading that's maybe would be worth people knowing about. They might not already know. What oh, kind you, of thing are you in the mood of in the mood for? Uh. I don't know. I mean, this is a, like a, a a coda, closing note, you know, of, of a an envoy or something. Well, actually, should I read the Yates one because that is a mouthful of air. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, and please. and well, well, I, let's practice what I preach and not say too much about it before I read it. <laughs> yeah. So, it's called. He think, and it's very short. Okay, so blink and you miss it, or yeah. maybe play play it. Hit hit you know, the back 30 seconds button on the podcast. Right. It's called, he, he thinks of those who have spoken evil of his beloved by W.B. Yeats. Half close your eyelids, loosen your hair, and dream about the great and their pride. They have spoken against you everywhere. But weigh this song with the great and their pride. I made it out of a mouthful of air. Their children's children shall say they have lied. There's nothing like a good malediction. And that's one that's both, it's both right. a love poem and a malediction. So that's, Isn't it? Yeah. He's really sticking it to them. Yeah. And it's a little bit, I mean, you know, there, there's several things that we would find troubling, I think, now to sure, the lady yeah. to, to arrange herself decorously for his contemplation. But even so, in the, in the and, you know, the end of it, he's, he's just trying to stick the knife in. And I'm not, I think he, not sure he's, um, I, I think the real molten core of the poem is in the middle yeah. where he says, weigh this song with the great and their pride. I made it out of a mouthful of air, you know? And I think that's what any poet is trying to do really. Yeah. Uh, we certainly don't have far to look for the great and their pride these days. Um, and I think maybe he's suggesting something about what the consolation of poetry can be in the, yeah. you know, in the midst of everything. Beauty and revenge. <laughs> of a certain, of a certain beauty and time. revenge. Was it Keats said beauty and truth? Beauty and revenge. Yeah. Now, yeah. well, I mean, as the point I make on the podcast, I think when he's going for revenge, I think yeah. he loses the poem. It's not such good poetry. Oh, yeah, I mean, I it's see, quite. I don't know. I, I maybe just because I am, I'm less interested in that as a piece of rhetoric than I am as a as a an evocation of a feeling. I mean, like, as people have said of a lot of elegies, it's not, sometimes they're self-centered or they're self-absorbed that, that uh-huh. we don't learn a whole lot about her, but we do, no. but we do get a very, a very sharp sense of his feeling and, and not necessarily that it's a, a, a laudable one or one we should celebrate, but it is a, it rings true. Yeah. It re- I know that, yeah, I know, does. I know that feeling. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, know like he, there was, you know, spleen as part of the human experience. <laughs> uh, Indeed. Yeah. I mean, Indeed, it, that's why I think is. of like, um, you know, like Horace's, um, he has some nasty stuff. I mean, I'll say Catullus can be so nasty, it's just ugly. But I think Yeats is a little more Horatian in that there's, he's also aware that he is a fool. It's both 
humble and prideful, uh, which is yeah, it's a good humble brag. Yeah, yeah, right. Which I think you know you need you need a lot of humility and a lot of arrogance to be a poet. I think is my my amen to that. That was my conversation with Mark McGinnis, host of A Mouthful of Air and just amazingly tolerant and patient guy because because my, my house was in a state of profound disorganization when I spoke with him and I am very grateful for his uh, uh, good graces in dealing with the chaos on my end of the Zoom call. You can find Mark uh, on Twitter at Mark McGinnis. He is the host of A Mouthful of Air as well as uh, the 21st Century Creative. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me as always at sleerickets.gmail.com or on Twitter where somebody other than fucking me will be answering tweets for a long time here on out uh, at sleerickets on Twitter. Uh, thank you again for listening. With any luck, I will be speaking to you all again very soon. Until then.